And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Ed Heiselmeyer. He is an expert on Obamacare, but larger than that, health care, Medicaid, state health care reform, and health providers, and all of that. Uh, Ed, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I must confess, I've been troubled ever since we got Obamacare. One reason, I don't think it was passed uh, honestly. But anyway, um, if a person steps way back, they, they've heard of this, Obamacare, but let's say they don't know too much about it. How would you describe it to them as compared to what we used to have? Well, this is basically an attempt to uh, sort of co-opt, if you will, the private health insurance plans that cover uh, half of America, certainly the uh, you know non-elderly working population and their families. And essentially... Uh, the folks who passed Obamacare, uh, they want standardization, uniformity. A, you know, they'd actually ideally prefer to have a single government-run program, but it's too expensive and too politically difficult for them to get it. So the next best thing was to try to reach out and regulate the private sector and also to expand, uh, to the extent that they could, spending uh, for public programs as well. So uh, essentially, uh, in fact, I, I use this quote from an advocate of it saying that basically a lot of what the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare is designed to do is to turn private insurance into a regulated public utility. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that is very disturbing for a lot of people. Uh, and you particularly see that clash when it comes to uh, the, the issues around uh, medical ethics and religious freedom, uh, as we've seen play out in, in the court cases, where, uh, you know, Catholic bishops and evangelical pastors are not really keen on the government coming in and turning their health plans into regulated public utilities based on uh, somebody else's morality and not their own. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And just simply from a free market point of view, um, I would like the freedom of selecting my doctor and selecting my health care plan. Well, yes, and that's the other problem. is, And, and that's why the law has been and remained consistently unpopular since enactment six years ago, which is frankly quite astonishing. I mean, even the, you know, the other side expected as, as the thing rolled out that people would learn to love it. Well, in fact, they haven't. Uh, and in fact, uh, in, in some, by some measures, opposition has actually grown. Uh, so when you look at the Gallup survey and you ask people, have you had a personal experience with it, um, over time that number of people who have had a personal experience goes up, of course, as, as it affects more and more people. But then they ask the question, was that positive or negative, or something to that effect, and the negatives outweigh the positives by about two to one. Mm-hmm. What about these various insurers that were part of the Obamacare and are now bailing out. Yes, you know, there's a mix of things. I mean, some of these folks uh, were on board and, and, you know, as I like to say, sort of drank the Kool-Aid. But a lot of this was uh, insurers didn't understand how 
fully understand how Obamacare was changing the market. Essentially, the exchange market is very heavily subsidized, but only for very low-income people. Uh, it, it, it has a lot of provisions that make it easy for people to game it, meaning if you need medical care, you go and you sign up, you get it. You spend far more in medical care than you pay in premiums, and then you leave. Um, so if you if you if you're going in as an insurer and you don't understand those risks and you don't understand how this is different from other markets you've normally operated, then you can get your head handed to you financially yeah. in there, and that's what's happened. Yeah. Uh, now some of the insurers who were more used to dealing with this kind of population, particularly insurers that run Medicaid managed care, have actually managed to be profitable in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's very few. Now, w- what that tells me is where this all goes is the number of enrollees doesn't grow much from where it is today, about 8 to 10 million, uh, and they're not all the same people. They cycle in and out. And the number of insurers shrinks down to maybe one or two per state. Um, and this is why you're hearing a lot of complaints from Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, because uh, aside from the Medicaid managed care plans in some places, sort of the last ones uh, stuck with all of this are the local Blue Cross and Blue Shield, because they've always offered everything to everybody in the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, now what's really damaging is that, I mean, because you could take that population and say, okay, we can sort of set that aside and and fence it off and make sure these people get taken care of. But what's really damaging is the spillover effect to people who don't get a subsidy but buy their own insurance because they're self-employed or uh, own or work in a small business that has to buy and are also subject to all the regulations. And they're the ones who are getting hit with huge premium increases. They're not losing choice of coverage as much. In other words, a number of these insurers that say, well, we won't offer on the exchange, will still sell you a policy off the exchange, uh, though that's not always true. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not getting hit on choice, but they're really getting hit on, on the cost. And, and that's where I see the political pressure for Congress to, to, to change this. Now, I've got um, very limited experience in this, but I do sense a frustration um, for a small business, let's say there's one employee, um, typically I'm in New York State, Ulster County, that small business owner will go and join the Ulster County Chamber of Commerce. And through that chamber, they'll connect up and get like a plan through MVP, at least locally. Um, but, you know, it's a high deductible and it's very expensive. It might be a, a mom and dad and one child, let's say. And that plan could cost $1,200, $1,500 a month. I mean, it's high bucks. Have those prices gone up somehow mysteriously due to Obamacare, or are they totally disconnected? Well, interestingly, you should pick uh, New York State, because New York State was one of a couple of states, Vermont being another, that actually... um, did Obama-like things to their markets before Obamacare. And thus, uh, for example, there is what's called pure community rating. So there's no difference in the rate charge based on the person's age. Uh, that makes coverage very, very expensive oh, sure. uh, for younger people. And, and it's actually worse than Obamacare in New York and Vermont. Oh. And that was that way before Obamacare. So okay. let me just let me just give you some numbers. Your your pool of 
you know, 21-year-olds or 20-year-olds, they're going to, what they consume in terms of healthcare versus the people who aren't yet on Medicare, say you're 63, 64-year-olds. The 63, 64-year-olds, those people consume five times what the 21-year-olds do. Oh, sure. Okay. So if you price it, if the 21-year-old is paying $100, they should be paying $500. What happens is an Obamacare says, well, you can't have five-to-one variation. You can only have three-to-one. And in New York and Vermont, they said, well, it's one-to-one. So actually, Obamacare would be an improvement in those states. Oh, my. Um, and this is why it's been so expensive uh, in, in those states, mm-hmm. uh, particularly for young uh, younger people. And of course, if, if you're younger and healthier, uh, driving up the cost is just going to make you less likely to buy the coverage. Yeah. Now, what about people that say, oh, I give up, forget it, I'm not going to join anything. Do those people get punished for their decision? Well, it depends on what they do. Um, there is the mandate uh, and the penalty or tax that you have to pay if you are not covered. Uh, now, there are certain exceptions. If you can't afford it, uh, there is an exception, affordability exception. Uh, and there are uh, a certain, uh, you know, and, and obviously a lot of people meet that requirement simply because they have employer coverage uh, or they have a, they're on a public program, Medicare or Medicaid. Um, there are uh, health care sharing ministries, which they were able to get into the legislation as an exception. So if you belong to one of those, then you don't have to have insurance and you can still avoid being fined. Um, Native Americans are accepted as well. So there are some exceptions. Okay, let me ask you this. Going forward, if you were to advise lawmakers uh, what a good approach would be, um, maybe more free market, whatever, whatever you say, what would your words be for them in terms of advice? Well, what they need to do is they need to go through and, and repeal and replace this in pieces, starting with the stuff that's most damaging. So I would start with the insurance market rules to allow more variety of plans. Uh, it's fine if you want to subsidize some people, but don't take the next step of trying to force a hidden cross subsidy by regulating everybody who's not getting an upfront subsidy. Uh, rather, take off some of these rules, like we mentioned earlier, the age rating rules, the uh, minimum benefits, things that drive up the costs of insurance across the board. Sure. Uh, if you want to get more people insured, making it more expensive is not the way to start out. <laughs> so there's a whole set of reforms, and I've written on those that actually help the members of Congress draft the legislation. So it's out there. It just needs the right opportunity to, to move it forward. Uh-huh. And the other thing is to uh, uh, to go and reform the Medicaid expansion, which is basically inequitable. You're, you're, you're extending Medicaid to able-bodied adults, and the federal government's going to pay the state more for doing that than for treating the people who really need to be on Medicaid the uh, the poor kids and and you know single uh, and, and poor mothers and, mm-hmm. and disabled people so that's just not fair and it's horribly expensive so if you did if you fix that you know states could still cover those people it's just that they would have to spend their own money uh, New York is a good example of that I mean New York was already covering these people and and now they're just getting extra money for doing the same thing well I've got you on the phone um, what are the details in Maryland for example. 
well, Maryland is an interesting state. Uh, they have a lot of regulation, though theirs tends to be on the provider side. I mean, remember, the other thing is that what this bill did not do is did not increase competition uh, on the provider side, which is where most of the money goes. I mean, you can talk about how much the insurance costs, but remember, for every dollar of premium you pay the insurance company, at least 85 cents, you know, 80 to 85 cents is going out the other door to pay the doctors and hospitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Maryland has a system that regulates payment rates for doctors and hospitals and makes it uh, expensive. They also have a certificate of need system, uh, which drives up the cost of uh, basically by allowing sort of hospital cartels and monopolies. I mean, we just had that in Maryland where the board that reviews it has said, you know, no, you're not going to build a, you know, you have to cut $100 million off of the Prince George's County proposed hospital uh, because what they were doing is they weren't doing it as a hospital. They were doing it as an economic development project. And, and, yeah. and they were using tax dollars to do it. And you have a sort of local monopoly. You need to clear that stuff out and let more efficient providers come in and compete to bring down the, the, the cost. Well, I've got you on the phone, too, if I may ask. Uh, what about New Jersey? And what's the, what's the story there? Uh, New Jersey is similar to, Med- to New York and, and Vermont. They have had uh, modified community rating. Uh, it's not as bad as New York and Vermont, um, and you know. But again, it's it's these are these states tend to be sort of already overregulated, uh, yeah. if you will. So even if you change the ACA or Obamacare or repeal it, you're still at the state level going to have to deal with some of these issues that some of these. Uh, uh, if you will, bluer states tend to be like you know on the coast tend to be overregulated. Sure. Now let me ask you one more question, if I may. Um, you spoke to what what you would um, advise in order to fix where we're at. Suppose this is just purely theoretical at this point. Suppose from the top down, we were to say, okay, we want some kind of a safety net healthcare system, but we want don't want the thing so bloated. Let's say you were starting from scratch. What would you recommend? Well, again, and you know, the way to understand this is, and I, I say this to to candidates all the time, is this is a lot like education policy. Okay, I, I mean, you know, the issue with education policy is who do all the schools exist to serve? Are they there to provide jobs for teachers, or you know, contracts for builders, or are they there to teach children? And if the if your answer is well, they're there to teach children, then who is is has the best uh, interest of the child you know, most at heart? And that would be the parents. Sure. So school reform to really work, you can do a lot of things to it, but you really have to empower the parents. And if the parents don't have money, that means you've got to give them the money. Now, government is reasonably good at taking money from A and giving money to B. It's not reasonably good or not very good at running a school system, running an insurance plan, running a hospital. So what I would do in healthcare or in education, again, if you were to start with a blank state, is say, look, let's confine the government to setting some very basic rules. So, for example, in healthcare, yes, you want the doctors to be trained and licensed. You want the hospitals to be regulated for health and safety and all the rest. But 
you know, and, and the insurance, you want a balanced and fair set of regulations so the insurance company doesn't take advantage of the customer and the customers aren't ripping off the insurance company. You know, people like setting fire to their own house and then saying, oh, you know, I want to collect on the insurance kind of thing. Um, so you have to have some basic rules. But beyond that, if you're concerned about people being able to get medical care, get an education, things like that, the government should really look to confine itself to, to what it can do, which it takes money from me in taxes and provides uh, you know, money to pay for, for disadvantaged kids to get an education. I'm okay with that. I'd just rather those kids got a better education that you handed the money over to the parents and let them choose the schools. And so the same principle would apply in health care. So you're big on choice. Yeah, I mean, because that's the only way you're going to get people. To, I mean, who who is the system there to work for? Is it there for the doctors and the hospitals, for the government bureaucrats, or is it there for the patients? And this is the problem in so much of the system. You you know, you asked for about a couple of states, but one of the key themes is you've got a lot of regulations and cross subsidies going on behind the scenes that do things like prop up hospitals because, oh, we need to have a hospital there, or uh, prevent competition because, well, gee, you know, if, if we had competition, uh, then, then we wouldn't be able to make money and we'd have to close the ER. I mean, th- this kind of stuff is going on. I love the idea of competition. It's hard. It, it doesn't feel safe. It feels scary to people that aren't used to it. But for the consumer, it brings the prices down for him or right. her. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'll give you an example of this, because I have this, a physician who called me a couple of times. He and his partners have a radiology practice in Bethesda, Maryland, which is north of Washington, D.C., and he wants to open up, or they want to open up a freestanding radiology practice in northern Virginia. Well, northern Virginia has a certificate of need process, so they have to go to Richmond to get approval to do this. Well, who is fighting to stop them opening a freestanding radiology practice in northern Virginia? Innova Hospital System, which controls almost all of the hospitals in five counties in Northern Virginia surrounding D.C. Mm. Why? Well, basically, because if they had a freestanding radiology practice, then they would be able to offer that service cheaper to patients, and then where would Innova come up with the money at once or needs? Oh, yeah. So essentially, they're arguing, keep competition out so I can continue to overcharge patients. (laughs) I mean, that's the bottom line. Yeah. And and we see this in in lots of states. I mean, you know, that you talk about New York. I once joked with the. Uh, this was years ago, so I'm sure this gentleman's no longer there. But he was at the time the chairman of the New York State Senate Committee on Healthcare, and I I ran into him at some conference, and I was just you know chatting with him, and I said, you know, I, I get the impression that hospitals in New York don't exist to provide patient care; they exist to provide jobs. <laughs> he said, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the frustrations I have since we're talking about health care is there's so many um, reports that a doctor has to do. You go and visit your doctor, you have a checkup. Most of the time, the doctor is forced to look at his or her laptop and type in a bunch of stuff as they talk with you instead of spending time with the patient looking at his ears and listening and talking. They're typing in all this this stuff. Well, you know, interestingly, uh, and particularly with primary care physicians, you're seeing more of them kind of opt out. And this is going to be, you know, this is what I think is actually kind of positive and interesting. Uh, For all the government regulation and micromanagement, uh, people find ways around the system. And this is true in healthcare in the U.S. It's true in trying to, you know, 
get your hands on toilet paper in the old Soviet Union or today's Venezuela. Yeah. You know, uh, people find ways around the system. So what we're seeing is a rise in something called direct primary care, where the physician basically says, you know, I'm just not going to play this anymore. Here's the deal. Um, how about I be your doctor uh, for a monthly retainer fee? You know, you sort of buy my services like you buy cable or Netflix. Oh, I love it. And 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 we found that two thirds of those practices charge 135 bucks a patient per month or less. Mm-hmm. And they get rid of the billing staff. They get rid of the paperwork. Um, and the doctor can spend more time with the patient. So that's what the patient's getting. Yes. The doctor gets to do what the doctor went to medical school to do, which was to practice medicine, not practice paperwork. The doctor gets to take home more money and charge, but still charge the patient less. And this is not just something in a big urban area. I'm finding this in rural areas. I was down uh, doing town halls in northern Arkansas, okay, <laughs> in the Ozarks. And um, this was on the Medicaid expansion down there. And one of the physicians that they had on the panel, they had local, poli- you know, local state legislators and physicians and whatnot on the panel with me. And uh, one of them is doing this in a town called Mountain Home, Arkansas. Now, it's a very nice area, but it's not the most accessible. I mean, you fly to Fayetteville and drive, what, two hours <laughs> east or fly to Branson, drive an hour and a half. Uh, but he's doing it there. And, you know, one of the things that he said was he said, oh, and if you need lab work, I've done a deal with the local lab, uh, Quest Diagnostics. So, I'll, you know, I'll send it to them and uh, I'll just, you know, pass the cost on to you. It'll be 25 bucks instead of a couple hundred. Wow. And I'll just tack it off the bill. And later when I brought that up with another physician who's doing direct primary care in Florida, he says, oh, yeah, I did the same thing. It's really cool. I, 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 I've heard of a doctor locally that's apparently doing something like that. And just a flat fee, go visit him. You don't have to dork around with all this insurance stuff. It saves him tons of money, it improves the doctor-patient relationship. It's just wonderful. Uh, we've got just a couple of minutes left. I need to ask you, uh, I noticed uh, in your write-up that you you went to St. Mary's College in Maryland. That caught my yeah. eye because uh, we have one of our stations is licensed to California. In California, and, Maryland. And we have coverage probably almost down to where St. Mary's College is, and you took history there, it says. Yes, yes. Well, that's cool. In terms of historically, uh, have we been through this kind of thing before where the government comes in and really wants to control health care? Um, well, we've had episodes where they've tried to do it, and it's been a gradual process. I think the historically significant thing to to keep in mind is even in the old days, a lot of what was set up in the, say, early 20th century as medicine became uh, more scientific uh, was really geared around the interests of the provider, Mm-hmm. not the consumer. So yes. the consumer has been often left out of this for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Do you know who organized Blue Cross and Blue Shield and why they did it? Mm-mm. Well, Blue Cross was organized as prepaid health care during the Depression by hospitals. Hmm. That gave them better cash flow if people paid it monthly in advance Think about it. You're in an economic depression. You're running a hospital which has fixed costs. 
So you're going to have those expenses whether people come in tomorrow or not. It helps you budget better. Yeah. And so that grew out of meeting the needs of hospitals during the Depression. <laughs> Interesting. And there's so much in healthcare where it's about meeting the needs of somebody other than the patient. Oh, yeah. And it's just that over time, it's moved from the providers to the employers to now the government in the driver's seat. Oh, yeah. It, it's of great concern to me, and uh, I'd love to see us get back to true health care uh, from doctor to patient and get rid of all the bureaucracy. Maybe um, one more question, if I may, and that is if someone wants to read more, some of your writings, uh, position papers sure. or whatever, could you give us a website? Yeah, very easy. It's uh, heritage.org, the Heritage Foundation, www org. Of course, uh, we work on a whole range of economic, domestic, foreign policy, mm-hmm. you know, military defense issues, national security. Uh, so you can go there, you can search by, you know, my name, by analyst name, you can search by a topic. Uh, yeah. Well, just, just give your name to the listeners. Yeah, it's Ed Heiselmeyer. Yeah. Uh, but it's probably easier just go to heritage.org and yeah. look for health care because I'm not the only one doing health policy. So yeah, okay. there's other stuff in there that are done by my colleagues. So, for example, if you were looking for something on the latest on Medicare uh, and, and proposals on Medicare for senior citizens, uh, my colleagues have done most of that work, not me. So, mm-hmm. you know. That's wonderful. Today we've been talking with Ed Heiselmeyer. And uh, he is a senior research fellow in Heritage's uh, Center for Health Policy Studies. Uh, Ed, thank you so much for taking your time with our listeners today. Thank you for having me on. Dear listener, you can find this uh, podcast up on our website. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.